You're listening to Liturgies of Life, the fifth season of Enacting the Kingdom. Here you'll be joining me and Father Jeffrey as we consider the wider implications of our everyday rituals. From shopping to social media to sports and to the so-called work-life balance, let's explore how the mundane aspects of our daily existence truly become liturgies of life. What is liturgy, Father Jeffrey? What is liturgy? That's the first question I ever asked you on our podcast back however many getting close to a hundred episodes ago um at the beginning i know getting uh (laughs) at the very beginning of our series on vespers actually the technically the question i asked was uh uh, what's the point of of the liturgical worship of the orthodox church not really what is liturgy but what's the point of liturgy and i thought to begin our newest season entitled Liturgies of Life, I would read to you the, the your answer. Oh <laughs> and, and, and we could, um, we could unpack you, you it. You should right? have presented it as, you know, I found this definition. What do you think? And then you could have had me comment on it. That would have been fun. No, this is, this is you. You said this, Father Jeffrey. Well, I think it's, I, I think it's a rather uh, beautiful and succinct uh, quote. So I'll, I'll read it and we can unpack it. We do in liturgy what we are meant to be doing in life. I'll read it one more time. We do in liturgy what we are meant to be doing in life. Now, you know, on first blush, you know, in an Orthodox liturgy, for anybody that's familiar with Orthodox worship, there's a lot of smells and bells. There's robes, there's censers with incense, there's icons, there's, you know, movement, like a ritualized movement. We don't do that. Like we don't often do that in life where we bring in all that kind of stuff. We're not, you know, swinging the censer through our house kind of every day. So what do we mean by we do in liturgy what we're meant to be doing in life? Like what, what's the connection there? Maybe that's a good place to start. Yeah. So I mean, you're quite right. It's, there's a stylization and a, a kind of formal ritualization in liturgy, but that shouldn't mask what is fundamentally happening there, which is, we're being placed within a story and that story has an end and that end we either live towards it or we live away from it. If we live towards it, we have habits of our heart and of our bodies that are ultimately shaped into the, the practices which, you know, lead towards that, that good end, that, that, that end to the story. And those are called virtues. And, those include in liturgy things like, you know, understanding the true nature of the, the human being and of our fellow human beings, right? Learning to love one's neighbor, to, to live in forgiveness and reconciliation. It's about finding that place where God intends us all to be of shalom, of, of kind of perfect righteousness and right living and, and peace and, and goodness and justice and beauty in which creation is called to share it's god's life shared you know with the world and so we in liturgy in a very concentrated and as you said yourself in a kind of rehearsed way we learn to do these things so that precisely we will be formed in those virtues those habits that they become second nature to us so that we can live that in what is actually the more fundamental liturgy which is the liturgy of the world 
you know, this is a, a distinction that um, helpfully was made by Karl Rahner, um, 20th century um, theologian who talks about the liturgy of the church and the liturgy of the world. And you might sort of think, well, of the two, liturgy of the church sounds much more important, right? You know, that's that's the main one and everything, liturgy of the world. Well, sure, the liturgy maybe spills over a little bit. We have the liturgy after the liturgy, sometimes Orthodox talk in that way. But actually, when you really think about it, it's the liturgy of the world, the liturgy of creation, the liturgy called to be part of that new creation where heaven and earth are joined together and sharing fully in the life of God. That's the fundamental liturgy. And what the kind of temporary and transient and you know the, the that rehearsal or practice place that concentrated area of of getting ready for the liturgy of the world is is the liturgy of the church and so for a time we need to kind of pull away from the world not in order to oppose it but precisely in order to do it right right so we it's not about carving out places of sacred, you know, speciality or, you know, holy as opposed to the profane and, and secular world around. It's about saying we withdraw to practice, to concentrate, to rehearse in order to to go out and, and ultimately upend the whole of creation as God has called us to do in and through the, you know, the death resurrection ascension of his son jesus christ who is our lord who is the one who in fact in himself becomes the you know that nexus point of heaven and earth and that beginning of new creation if you're not a patron of enacting the kingdom you're only getting half a podcast this show only exists because of an active community of people just like you over on patreon when you become a patron, you'll get additional episodes, live streams, and our ever-growing backlog of episodes, 66 at the time of this recording. And as we're social media free, Patreon is the only place to engage with us and others about these episodes. Go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom to join the growing community. This season we've entitled Liturgies of Life, and we've just begun that discussion into liturgies. I think it's worth delving a little bit more into defining what we mean by liturgy here, because that's literally what this whole season is about. So when I think of, let's say, the regular person, when they're confronted with the word liturgy, I think what would come to mind is probably something like ritual, right? That's a word that would come to mind. Maybe Mm -hmm. something like formal, um, Maybe something even like I sit back and watch somebody do something. I think that's a little bit in there as well. Um, Yeah, I I think just in terms of what a person on the street might come up with, I think ritual formalness and maybe spectatorness. (laughs) Sorry, those are not real words, but you understand what I mean. I'm wondering if you could kind of comment on those three things as kind of the everyday person's perspective of liturgy, where where that's right and where that's wrong. Yeah, so in a a broader sense, um, you know, if we think of of liturgy in in the way that that we're speaking of it and construing it, it, it's actually that whole collection, you know, of practices and and rituals um, in which we are immersed. So, yeah, some of them we observe, but, you know, we're maybe not conscious, actually, of all the ones that we are participating in at all times and places. And the point of recognizing them not simply as, you know, things that are done or, you know, habits or, or whatever is is to pick up on something that 
you know, long ago in ancient Greece, the philosopher Aristotle noticed, which is that these practices, these these things that we're not even aware of, the subconscious ways that we live our lives and so forth, they're not neutral, right? They're either living towards a good, right? Or they are living away from it. And if they're living towards that good, which is the the, the telos, the, the purpose, the, the end of the story that, that we live in, then, then we call them virtues, right? And if we are living away from that, they're called vices. And these are maybe even terms and, and, and concepts that are unfamiliar to most people today. Maybe they don't even you know, bother to worry about what's a virtue, what's a vice. People, you know, maybe think of certain habits as, as being vices, but they don't think of that wider picture that these, all these rituals and practices and behaviors and, and second nature habits that we have are actually implotted into something. In fact, they're implotted into a whole lot of somethings because those stories that we participate in operate on so many different layers, Right. When I'm involved in a chess game, there's a story just in that, right? There's an end to that. There's a purpose in that. Each action I take either is directed towards excellence in chess or, or away from it. And in my case, more often away from it than, than not. But, you know, so that's just one small story in which I'm participating in any, any given day, right? So as a, as a, you know, father of a family. There are all kinds of layers of stories there. As a person who works in in various kinds of of employment, there's stories there. As a as a you know person who's resident in my neighborhood, there's stories there. As a as a consumer in our society, I, I'm participating. You know, in that story. And I think we often and this is Aristotle's main point. We often think that a lot of what we do in our lives is controlled by our thinking. Right? We identify ourselves with our thoughts. I'm, I think I'm a Christian, therefore I'm a Christian, right? Whereas I haven't actually paid attention to, well, what are the actual second nature habits and practices that I have that would even demonstrate that, right? Am I truly implauded in the Christian story, which is for, for those of us who are Christians, that should be the ultimate story, the story that kind of upends all the other stories, the story that subverts them all and, and ultimately forms you know, our hearts, it's not a matter of thinking our way into the kingdom. It's a matter of forming our bodies and habits and behaviors, our loves, our desires, which kind of underlie those. And that's, you know, what we call the virtues, you know, of the kingdom. And liturgy, its function there is the kind of marshalling of our desires and our loves towards that particular you know, story. And so liturgy, it consists of the practices, it consists of, of the elements of, of the story of the tradition that we receive in order to, you know, to kind of form those practices and habits. But it's, it's often unconscious, right? So that's why we focus on the liturgy of the church as being this concentrated, rehearsed, and, and conscious, right? With something we pay attention to, uh, form of liturgy, which is why, you know, that's where it gets, the term liturgy in, in ways that other things don't. But the scary thing is all those unconscious ones that are out there, right? That are nevertheless embedded in narratives and stories that nevertheless have a telos, that nevertheless have practices and rituals and habits that nevertheless consist of love and desires that, that, that are forming us that we're just not even aware of. So that's why looking at 
everything in culture and in the world around us as liturgies is a really helpful lens to, to first of all, figure out where the liturgy of the church fits into that and how it kind of intersects with all of that. But then secondly, to kind of do that diagnosis and figure out what is the real liturgy in my life? You know, where am I really being formed? If someone were to observe me, not my thoughts, mind you, because I think pretty well as a Christian, but if they actually observed my habits, my second nature, would they truly conclude that I have died to Christ and that it is he who lives in me because I've risen, you know, with with the the risen Lord Jesus? And that's, you know, the, the, the real question. And I think that's what we'll be focusing on during this particular series. If you are getting value from this podcast, please consider writing a short, positive five-star review on your podcast app. And even though we are social media free, there is still a place you can keep up to date with Enacting the Kingdom. You can join the email list by going to enactingthekingdom.com. We're going to be talking about this concept of story a lot, right? So Father Jeffrey, in that you probably dropped the word story I don't know, a dozen times at least in, in that past section. And it's a very useful word. I want to take a step back and maybe unpack it a bit more because we're going to be bringing it up way more throughout the entire season. Um, so for our listeners who might not know, in, in, a, in a past life, I was an improviser. I, I would perform uh, improv theater and I would teach improv theater as well. Um, and you know, the the group that I was in, we would perform an improvised one-act play. And, you know, I was part of the high school league in which I, I would coach and I would teach and, and adjudicate. And one of the events was called Story Event. And it was to teach these young improvisers just how the basics of telling a story. And so each uh, scene needed to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I, I guess, Father Jeffrey, what I would like now is sort of an unpacking of what we mean when we're talking about story relative to what it means about church, but what it means about our everyday life and employment. We did talk about it. I just want to sort of really focus in on that word and, and define how we're using it. Um, it seems to me that a beginning, a story having a beginning, a middle, and an end is probably a very good place to start with what we mean by story. Yeah, precisely. And so, you know, we're not talking fiction versus nonfiction here. We're talking about any sort of script or narrative in which we find ourselves, you know, living. And I think what has been a real insight of the second half of the 20th century into the 21st century now has been that, you know, social psychologists and, uh, you know, developmental psychologists and, and, and others, and even people treating people with, with mental illness and so forth and looking into the depths of the human person have realized just how powerful it is to be a, that, that as a human being, we live within, you know, these stories and that we're always and everywhere participating in them and telling ourselves stories. So if we're, if we're actually in some sort of distress or disorder, it's probably because we're trying, we're telling ourselves stories that are destructive, right? Self-destructive. And if we're, you know, forming good habits and living towards good, good ends and achieving things in life, it's probably because we're, we're participating in stories that are constructive. In other words, that have, you know, that come from a good place, have a good middle and, and are heading ultimately, and this is the most important part towards, you know, a good end. And it was that end, that telos, that purpose that, that Aristotle way back when, I mean, this is n none of this is new insight into the human person. I say Aristotle was, was focusing on this, you know, some two and a half thousand years ago where he was saying, you know, you might think that in order to, to act as a human being, 
to choose to to behave in a certain way, you just need to kind of think yourself there. Well, no, he's saying it actually matters that you Im- embed yourself within this you know wider thing that we would kind of call story or narrative today, which is about having you know a, a community and a tradition and a set of practices and ultimately this kind of habituation, this this living towards that, you know, in, inhabiting an environment where the, the practices, you know, lead towards that telos, towards that end, right? So that's what we're what we're talking about when, when we talk about, you know, living, you know, within story. And of course, the Bible itself presents human beings in this way, right? And invites human beings to participate ultimately in the widest and grandest story of all, which is the story of God, the narrative of the kingdom of God. And so um, it's it's in that sense. So when you give your example of, you know, improv theater, I mean, once you know, you know, kind of a little bit about where you come from, you know, a little bit about the kind of plot points in the middle, and ultimately, you know, that end, right, that you're working towards, well, then you can, you can improvise, you can, you can step onto that stage and act and behave and, and, and be. And a lot of it then becomes, you know, subconscious, right? And in fact, the vast majority of what we ever do is not even thought about in, in that way. It's not a, not a, you know, contrived thing. It's not a, a, a planned um, thing. It, it becomes just what is second nature to us because we belong to to this thing, which is framed by beginning, middle, and end, this story. And so there's many stories in our in our lives, but we to become conscious of them, um, not because we can think our way into doing anything about it, but so that we can be formed or counterformed by the, the right stories, that we make sure we're implauding ourselves, you know, more consciously and deliberately in something like the liturgy of the church, because ultimately that that's going to be good for us. And the Christian claim, the Orthodox theological claim is that in the liturgy of the church, we are face to face and involved in the true human story, right? This is the, the true and proper end of the human being. That's our ultimate, you know, claim to the world. Come be part of the thing which leads to the true and purpose a true purpose of being a human being. Uh, and that means the self-sacrificing love of the creator in mm-hmm. whose image we are, we are formed, right? That's the right story to be part of. Whereas everywhere around us, we are being invited into many other stories, which have other ends, which are not always, you know, diabolically opposed to the, the true purpose of a human being, but are always and everywhere counterfeits, right? False substitutes for that, self-sacrificial love of interdependent communion in the life of the Trinity, which is our ultimate purpose. Anything else, you know, can only ever be a counterfeit of that beauty, of that truth, of that justice, of that, of that true human life and so forth. And so it's in that sense that we can look at every part of our life as involving these stories because everything's trying to pull us towards one end or another. And that end, you know, is the end of a story, as Aristotle said. Enacting the Kingdom only exists because of an active community of people just like you over on Patreon. Elizabeth writes, After listening to Enacting the Kingdom and other Eastern Christian podcasts, I decided to become a patron to get more involved in the faith community, further my education, and support Canadian thinkers and creators. I have found Enacting the Kingdom an intellectually stimulating and educational resource valuable to my growth in the faith. Go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom to join the growing community. 
Yeah, I mean, that definition of story really, I think, opens things up for our, the rest of our discussion throughout the season. You know, like the, the church is one place that is telling a story, but other places tell stories too. And how do these things fit together? And how does, um, how do the liturgies of life affect us right here at uh, Enacting the Kingdom? We've spent a couple of seasons looking at the actual liturgies of the church. Right. Like we looked at Vespers, the evening worship of the Orthodox Church. We looked at the baptism, right? The receiving of a new person into the family of God, which are these services with texts and with a particular story. But in this season, we're going to be looking at other liturgies, liturgies that aren't within the great book of needs or, you know, whatever it might be, the Orthodox Church books. These are liturgies that we encounter every day in our in our Western society that tell us uh, different stories. Father Jeffrey, this might be a good place to bring up uh, the uh, story from James K. Smith. I'll, maybe I'll let you take it away here. Yeah. So one of the authors and you know theologians, uh, Christian philosophers, who's really being paying attention to this kind of phenomenon of cultural liturgies, um, the way in which exactly in the way Aristotle in, envisages, uh, exactly in the way that the, the, the early church you know, knows and understands that we are formed by the, these narratives, um, you know, the world around us continues to operate that way, even though we've kind of co- slowly convinced ourselves over a long period of time that actually what really matters is just how we think, right? And so as long as I think I'm a Christian, I'm all right. But meanwhile, I'm participating in all of these other stories that are essentially coercing me at the deepest and most subconscious level of my heart towards other ends. So I was thinking I'm a Christian, but ultimately my heart is oriented towards other things because I'm participating, you know, in those. And and there's this um, uh, kind of uh, model or case study that he gives in, in one of his books, which I, I could read now. And that's, uh, it's kind of startling the way he it's a kind of an apocalyptic thing. It's a lifting of the veil on something that we participate in quite happily. And I say, we're thinking ourselves as Christians and actually here is the kind of real liturgy of our lives that's, that's more dominant than we even realize. And it's maybe, you know, co-opted our, our desires and our loves and our worship in a direction that we would ultimately be quite ashamed of if we, if we, sat down and, and, and did this kind of deconstruction of, of the liturgies of our life. So I'll go ahead and read this now. And sure. um, it's the sort of thing we'll be unpacking, you know, sort of throughout the, the series and everything. But this is um, one of the ways he, in, James Smith, introduces um, his, um, uh, you know, whole idea of the phenomenology of cultural liturgy. So I would like to invite you, he says, for a tour of one of the most important religious sites in our metropolitan area. It's the kind of place that may be quite familiar to many of you, but my task here is actually to try to make this place strange. I will try to invite you to see it with new eyes, which will require trying to shake off the scales of mundane familiarity. This will require focused attention to detail, like a Tarkovsky film. Imagine your attention focused by the slow, patient, observant gaze of the camera frame. And we'll turn that camera gaze and let it hang on something you see all the time, but perhaps without seeing it. So you might imagine that we are Martian anthropologists who have come to this strange world of 21st century North America in order to gather data on the rituals and religious habits of its inhabitants. 
Having made our way from Mars, equipped with the tools of ethnographic description, we're going to venture to one of this culture's most common religious sites and observe it with eyes that are focused on the religious aspects of its rituals. So join me in the approach to this site. As we're still off at a distance, I want you to notice the sheer popularity of the site as indicated by the colorful sea of parking that surrounds the building. The site is throbbing with pilgrims every day of the week as thousands and thousands make the pilgrimage. In order to provide a hospitable environment and absorb the daily influx of the faithful, the site provides an ocean of parking. But the monotony of black tarmac is covered by dots of color from cars and SUVs lined up row by row, patiently waiting as the pilgrims devote themselves to the rituals inside. Indeed, the parking lot constitutes a kind of moat around the building since there are no sidewalks that lead to the site. Religious sites of this kind almost inevitably emerge on the suburban edges of cities, areas planned around the automobile and generally suspicious of pedestrians. The sacred building even provides a sanctuary from this incessant culture of automobility, as some pilgrims make their way to the sanctuary, especially in winter, just for the space to walk. We've now made our way into this glistening sea of black and color and found a haven for our vehicle, still quite a distance from the sanctuary. However, already the hospitality of this community extends itself. Waiting for us is a train-like cart to convey our family across the parking lot. Other pilgrims board the conveyance, and we begin to wend our way toward the building that sprawls in both directions and seems to be rising from the horizon, a dazzling array of glass and concrete with recognizable ornamentation. Indeed, because this particular religious site is part of an international, yea, Catholic network of religious communities, the architecture of the building has a recognizable code that makes us feel at home in any city. The large glass atriums at the entrances are framed by banners and flags. Familiar texts and symbols on the exterior walls help foreign faithful to quickly and easily identify what's inside. And the sprawling layout of the building is anchored by larger pavilions or sanctuaries akin to the vestibules of medieval cathedrals. Our train ride has brought us to one of several grandiose entrees to the building channeling us through a colonnade of chromed arches to the towering glass face with doors lining its base. As we enter the space, we're ushered into a narthex of sorts intended for receiving, orienting, and channeling new seekers, as well as providing a bit of decompression space for the regular faithful to enter in to the spirit of the space. For the seeker, there's a large map, a kind of worship aid, to give the novice an orientation to the location of various spiritual offerings and provide direction into the labyrinth that organizes and channels the ritual observance of the pilgrims. One can readily recognize the regulars, the faithful, who enter the space with a sense of achieved familiarity, who know the rhythms by heart because of habit-forming repetition. The design of the interior is inviting to an almost excessive degree, sucking us into the enclosed interior spaces with windows and the ceiling open to the sky, but none on the walls open to the surrounding automotive moat. This conveys a sense of vertical and transcendent openness that at the same time shuts off the clamor and distractions of the horizontal mundane world. This architectural mode of enclosure and enfolding offers a feeling of sanctuary, retreat and escape. From the narthex entry, one is invited to lose oneself in this space, which channels the pilgrims into a labyrinth of octagons and circles, inviting a wandering that seems to escape from the driven, goal-oriented ways we inhabit the outside world. 
The pilgrim is also invited to escape from the mundane ticking and counting of clock time and to inhabit a space governed by a different time, one almost timeless. With few windows and a curious Baroque manipulation of light, it almost seems as if the sun stands still in here, or we lose consciousness of time's passing and so lose ourselves in the rituals for which we've come. However, while daily clock time is suspended, the worship space is very much governed by a kind of liturgical festal calendar, variously draped in the colors, symbols, and images of an unending litany of holidays and festivals to which new ones are regularly added, since the establishment of each new festival translates into a greater numbers of pilgrims joining the processions to the sanctuary and engaging in worship. The layout of this temple has architectural echoes that hark back to medieval cathedrals, mammoth religious spaces that can absorb all kinds of different religious activities all at one time. And so one might say that this religious building has a winding labyrinth for contemplation, alongside of which are innumerable chapels devoted to various saints. As we wander the labyrinth in contemplation, preparing to enter one of the chapels, we'll be struck by the rich iconography that lines the walls and interior spaces. Unlike the flattened depictions of saints one might find in stained glass windows, here is an array of three-dimensional icons adorned in garb that, as with all iconography, inspires us to be imitators of these exemplars. These statues and icons embody for us concrete images of the good life. Here is a religious proclamation that does not traffic in abstracted ideals or rules or doctrines, but rather offers to the imagination pictures and statues and moving images. While other religions are promising salvation through the thin, dry media of books and messages, this new global religion is offering embodied pictures of the redeemed that invite us to imagine ourselves in their shoes, to imagine ourselves otherwise, and to thus willingly submit to the disciplines that produce the saints evoked in the icons. Here again, we need to appreciate the Catholicity of this iconography. These same icons of the good life are found in such temples across the country and around the world. The symbols and colors and images associated with their religious life are readily recognized the world over. The wide circulation of these icons through various mediums, even outside the sanctuary, invites us to make the pilgrimage in the first place. This temple, like countless others now emerging around the world, offers a rich, embodied, visual mode of evangelism that attracts us. This is a gospel whose power is beauty, which speaks to our deepest desires and compels us to come not with dire moralisms, but rather with a winsome invitation to share in this envisioned good life. Yet one should note that it has its own modes of ex exclusivity too. Because of its overwhelming success in converting the nations, it is increasingly difficult to be an infidel. And it is a mode of evangelism buoyed by a transnational network of evangelists and outreach, all speaking a kind of unified message that puts other fractured religions to shame. If unity is a testimony to a religion's truth and power, it will be hard to find a more powerful religion than this Catholic faith. As we pause to reflect on some of the icons on the outside of one of the chapels, we're thereby invited to consider what's happening within the chapel, invited to enter into the act of worship more properly, invited to taste and see. We're greeted by a welcoming acolyte who offers to shepherd us through the experience, but also has the wisdom to allow us to explore on our own terms. Sometimes we will enter cautiously, curiously, tentatively making our way through this labyrinth within the labyrinth, having a vague sense of need, but unsure of how it will be fulfilled. 
so we are open to surprise, to that moment when the Spirit leads us to an experience we couldn't have anticipated. Having a sense of our need, we come looking, not sure what for, but expectant, knowing that what we need must be here. And then we hit upon it, combing through the racks, we find that experience and offering that will provide fulfillment. At other times, our worship is intentional, directed, and resolute. We have come prepared for just this moment, knowing exactly why we're here in search of exactly what we need. In either case, after time spent focused and searching in what the faithful call the racks, with our newfound holy object in hand, we proceed to the altar, which is the consummation of worship. While acolytes and other worship assistants have helped us navigate our experience, behind the altar is the priest who presides over the consummating transaction. And this is a religion of transaction, of exchange and communion. When invited to worship here, we're not only invited to give, we're also invited to take. We don't leave this transformative experience with just good feelings or pious generalities, but rather with something concrete and tangible, with newly minted relics, as it were, that are themselves the means to the good life embodied in the icons who invited us into this participatory moment in the first place. And so we make our sacrifice leave our donation, but in return receive something with solidity that is wrapped in the colors and symbols of the saints and season. Released by the priest with a benediction, we make our way out of the chapel in a kind of denouement, not necessarily to leave, our awareness of time has been muted, but rather to continue the contemplation and be invited into another chapel. And who could resist the tangible realities of the good life so abundantly and invitingly offered? Thanks for listening. I'm Father Yuri Gladio, an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning, and I'm joined on this show by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey is the director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto and holds a doctorate in liturgical theology. Come connect with us on Patreon with any thoughts and follow-ups about this episode. We look forward to seeing you next time.